0: Once upon a time, I was a yogi at the forest refuge. I was uh, doing a month-long retreat with uh, Ajahn Suchito. And it was right at the beginning of the retreat, and on these monastic retreats, probably many of you know, everyone's on the eight precepts. So I'd just begun the eight precepts. And for me, uh, it takes a, a few days for my body to get used to that rhythm of eating so I can be super hungry right in the morning. And I remember towards the beginning of the retreat in the early morning, I'd done the early morning, sit in some walking meditation, super hungry. And I walk into the dining hall, I think it was around breakfast time. And it was this feeling of just being surrounded by all of these irritating people who were being so unmindful and I was thinking what am what have I gotten myself into I mindfully ate my breakfast okay semi mindfully ate my breakfast which felt so good my belly was full and I definitely remember looking around and feeling like oh All these lovely people are surrounding me. Maybe you can relate to this. This this mind is co-creating these worlds. And then how it can be intermixed with physiology and then reactivity to that physiology. And these whole worlds spring up with very different people in it. And Tueri really set the stage for this. This is so much what dependent origination is, is noticing the conditions that give rise to, you could say, these worlds. And that image that she offered, the the leaf that lands in the the still water and then it ripples out. And those ripples are creating these certain worlds. And then a, a different kind of leaf, comes down upon the water and then ripples out in a different way. And it's uh, so connected, these worlds, that this mind co-creates. This quote that's uh, attributed to Anais and puts it so well, we do not see things as they are. We see them as we are. And tonight I'd like to share with you some reflections uh, just about this. We do not see things as they are. We see them as we are. Why is that? Because this mind, it's it's co-creating these worlds. The the world filled with irritating people, it arises then passes away. Then there's this other world of such lovely people. It arises and then passes away. Hopefully you've noticed this. Have you noticed the mind, the 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 worlds that that the mind creates, and then you inhabit? Uh, the poet Tony Hoagland, uh, I feel, speaks to this in one of his poems. He uh, he actually just uh, passed away a few years ago, and really such a fine poet of. Combining this quality of humor, humor and heart around uh, often around topics of of about the challenges that we face within this human existence. So I feel like he's pointing to this in this poem called "Phone Call." This phone call he's making. He begins. Maybe I overdid it when I called my father an enemy of humanity. (laughs) That might have been a little strongly put, a slight exaggeration. An immoderate description of the person who at the moment, 2,000 miles away, holding the telephone receiver six inches from his ear, must have regretted pain for my therapy. What I meant was that my father was an enemy of my humanity. And what I meant behind that was that my father was split into two people, one of them living deep inside of me like a bad king or an incurable disease, blighting my crops, striking down my herds, poisoning my well. The other standing in another time zone in a kitchen in Wyoming with bad knees and white hair sprouting from his ears. I, I don't want to scream forever. I don't want to live without proportion like some kind of infection from the past. So I have to remember the second Father. The one whose TV dinner is getting cold while he holds the phone in his left hand and stares blankly at the window. Where just now the sun is going down and the last fingertips of sunlight are withdrawing from the hills they once touched like a child. Isn't that a striking description, at least it is for me, of the worlds that this mind can create? It creates my father in this way, and I so appreciate that realization. Oh, he's in here. And then there's that turn, the the inclination of the heart and mind into a different world, a world filled with compassion. For that person standing 2,000 miles away with the phone in his hand. And do you hear, I mean, I I can feel for me in this how the heart is so much softer and tender around that second father. And yet maybe your minds, like mine and even the poets, it can get so hooked by the father I'm carrying around. And the Buddha Buddha points to this way of framing the unfolding of experience. Going back to that sutta that Tueri had uh, mentioned, I think in our first talk, the Rohitasa sutta, where there is this discussion between the Buddha and this deva, Rohitasa And you might remember in that the Buddha is describing the particular kind of world, the Pali word loka, that we're exploring in this practice. He says, and you might remember this quote that Tori shared with us, it is in in this fathom-long body, in this body right here, endowed with perception and mind that I proclaim the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the way leading to the cessation of the world. I'm not merely exploring the world out there, but rather the world or worlds that are being co-created by this mind. And in this quote, it's, uh, it's a particular world, the, the world of suffering and how that, these worlds of suffering arise how they can cease and the path leading to their cessation. And again, in this, I I feel like the Buddha is again pointing to the sense of, oh, we do not see things as they are. We see them as we are. And just this, I find this such a a juicy, a fascinating way of framing, of viewing my experience, especially on retreat. And it can be kind of more of a general mindfulness, I find, where I'm just becoming curious about the different worlds that this mind inhabits throughout the day. And noticing as Tuari was pointing to, the, the conditions that give rise to those worlds. In the mix, there, there's the worry, or maybe it's the fear or the anxiety in the mind. And then it feels like, like, like this, this person that gets also born into that world. It's, it's living in this, this world of worry. Right? The, the mind gets worried about what I'm eating or what I'm not eating worried about some issue at home. starts to worry about money or maybe about my parents or about my sister or a niece. Right? It just goes on and on. It's, it's, it's like it, it it's pasting this quality of worry all over the place. And then there it is. The world of worry. Or the world of judging. Oh, there's... All of a sudden, something wrong with everyone else. And it almost feels like the mind gets tired of that, and it's like, oh, there's something wrong with me. (laughs) Just to notice this, how it comes into being and how it disappears. I find another wonderful place, just to become curious about this, is the quote-unquote waking world, when I'm quote-unquote awake during the day. And the sleeping world. And in particular, the place that I find it fascinating is when the mind is transitioning from the one, one to the other. Because then it becomes clear oh, this is just a world that the mind's inhabiting. And it's like a different mixture of sense gates. You know, the, the mind starts to fall asleep in the night. And often what becomes alive is this sense gate of the mind, of images and talk, like in the dream world. The world of body and sensation completely changes. And then there's the transition out of that, where there's this kind of re-emergence into this other world, being awake. They're just worlds of the mind. Can you notice that? And culturally, it's true, we value this waking world more than the dreaming world. But there are other cultures that actually see the dreaming world as more real in some way. We do not see things as they are, we see them as we are. And in the quote that I shared with you from the Rohitasa Sutta, the Buddha points out just to a couple of the conditions that are around uh, creating these worlds. He talks about this fathom-long body endowed with perception and the mind. So I want to slow down with this one quality that he's pointing to because it, it, it's uh, uh, quite interesting in this context that I'm sharing with you, this, this, uh, this quality of perception because it's so intertwined with the creation of the co-creation of worlds. So what is perception? You could say it's a process. It's a process by which the mind it, uh, by which it recognizes or categorizes an experience arising through the six sense bases. For example, if if you're a sighted person, and you look up here on the altar, you know, to here and over there. What the mind does with that, that visual uh, data is that then it categorizes it. Oh, flower. Right? There's a scene and there's a recognition. Oh, that's a flower. Or it maybe sees this and it's like, oh, Chair. So we do this with sounds, with sights, with sensations, with smells, this categorizing, this naming, as far as that goes. And I just want to point out something which I find so interesting, that for people who were blind at birth and then had their vision restored later on, the formation of visual perception is quite different. For example, there's a a story of an individual who was blind at birth and then later on he had his eyesight restored. Yet when he would look at a, a flight of stairs, all he would see would be these horizontal lines. And it wasn't because the visual data was different, it's because of how the mind was perceiving it, how it was categorizing it. There wasn't that category stairs that had formed through the developmental years, just horizontal lines. So, like, when you see this chair, you're literally seeing the mind. That's what you're seeing. This is a fabrication of the mind. If you were a moth or an ant, it wouldn't, you wouldn't, it wouldn't look this way. <laughs> But it's so easy to forget that we walk around feeling like, oh, here's this world out there. It's it's in here. And I want to be clear about this example because you know a person with sight, and I'm just pointing to this in this example too, does not perceive the world in a better way than a person without sight. They're just different ways of perceiving the world. And I'll come back to this, because sometimes there is values given to some ways of perceiving more than other ways of perceiving. We might even get to that to the, at the end of the retreat, because there's a whole ethical dimension that I'm not going to get to about how, uh, how we perceive the world and how that runs into ethics. And this doesn't mean that at least... Uh, from the standpoint of Theravada Buddhism or the texts of early Buddhism, it doesn't mean that there is no uh, world, quote-unquote, out there. And, and in these texts of early Buddhism, Theravada, there are sense objects that are out there that then interact with the, the sense faculties and the mind co-creates it with this, uh, uh, this world, with that, with that data. And it is true later on in Buddhism, in what's called Huayan Buddhism or Yogacara. It's a, a, a consciousness only. Huayan and, and yeah, Yogachara is about a consciousness only or mind only way of, of understanding the world. And it's also found in Vedanta, like in the Upanishads, this mind only quality. And in Buddhist terminology, the perception is situated around uh, a kind of sign. The, the Pali word is nimitta. It's u- often used around uh, the practice of samadhi, but it's uh, more general than that, and it actually gives, a, 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 I think, a more refined sense of what nimitta is pointing to in samadhi practice. And what a nimitta is, is that there's this sense data that comes in, the, 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 in, in let's say, through the visual field, and then there's a category or a marker or a sign that arises together with that sense experience and then there's chair there's flower there's that they align together and then there's that experience and these are coming together they're molding to to shape to co-create this world and just with my first story, the thing to to notice is that the mind states that are mixed in with that are going to valence that world. Irritating, lovely, beautiful, calm, scary. And it can be interesting just to start to become sensitive to perception. Like sometimes what I love is if I'm in the hall here sitting, if I get here early before a sitting meditation, and just sounds, hearing And then it's like, oh yeah. Sometimes there's like just this like uh, fleeting image of like footsteps, right, or a body moving by me. So it sometimes is a very clear image in the mind that kind of flashes, or a uh, kind of a vague filling in of the experience. Where it's not, it's not like sound, and then there's the image. It's like, oh, there's a person walking by me. But already there's so many conditions that have formed that world. You can explore it just with the sound of the bell at the end of a sit, just noticing. Sometimes there's the formation that you'll see of perception, and in practice, in meditation practice, remember we're just noticing. So it's not trying to stop perception from happening; is to notice that this is this is part of experience. In in Abhidhamma, it's one of the. I think it's one of the universal chatasikas. It's, it's, a, it's a mind state or a, a process of the mind that's happening with every moment of conscious experience. And what can be so interesting is just noticing it as uh, perceiving is arising. Because then what starts to get disentangled is, is as I'm, I'm not the one doing this. It's just happening. Perception just happens. It comes upon me. It's just something that's flowing through the system. So it's a way to undermine that sense of identification with that. And to also be clear, mindfulness of perception, it's not about trying to t- catch all of these acts of perception because they're happening so quickly. And there's sometimes a perception upon a perception. It's just more resting back and becoming curious about this facet of experience. And I do want to point out, because some of you have maybe noticed this, is that sometimes when the mind is more collected and settled... that that sometimes these larger chunks of perception quiet down. And you might have had this experience where you're outside walking and there's sense data coming in, but the the, the mind quickly naming it as tree or car is much quieter. It's just seeing or just hearing. And for me, it can be... uh, a really uh, beautiful thing to notice and to linger with and savor. Because in those moments, you could see there's less fabrication going on. Fabrication of worlds is still happening, but it's quieted. And often when the fabrication is less, for me there's this like sense of intimacy with experience. Real intimacy. So I just want to point that out, if that's something that comes along on its own. Also, sometimes uh, the time that I, I get clear about perception is when these signs, these nimitas, don't match up with the sense data. Because then I, I get a, a, another kind of view of how these worlds are being created. And I remember a time of this happening. I was, uh, my partner and I were out sleeping under the, uh, the stars, kind of deep in the forest. It was away from city lights. And it was on a moonless night, and I think it was the early springtime. So here we are, looking at the stars. And then there was this kind of this a line of these small, bright dots of light that appeared in the sky. They kind of uh, appeared, and then there were a string of them, and then they began to disappear. I had never seen anything like this. Neither had my partner. It was so deeply unnerving to notice something in the night sky that were these bright little lights, and we didn't have a like cell phone connection to get, get, cells, you know, get a sense of what it was. And and both of us could feel like the mind trying to kind of. Mind, you know kind of looking at the associative bank of what this is and I remember my partner's mind immediately went to aliens it's got to be aliens so she told me that and my mind went to Santa Claus it's Santa Claus there's the sled reindeer I think it made sense you know Santa Claus doesn't it's not only in the wintertime it could be in the spring and i I'm, I'm not quite sure what was more disturbing for my partner, either aliens or what my mind came up with for the uh, for the <laughs> for the dots i think many, maybe some of you know what what this is when i'm they're, they're low orbit the low orbit satellites i think that are often connected with starlink but we had no idea and here it was here was this kind of this this uh, this um kind of gumming up the works of the the world being created and the disturbance that could be felt around that. Noticing that so much of how this mind gets a sense of safety, security, is feeling like I know what's going on and is dependent upon perception in some way. And there's another dimension of perception that's tied with some of what I've already uh, mentioned. And it's this idea that uh, th- that there can be this implicit kind of um, confidence that how I perceive the world is the right way to perceive the world. And this comes and it can bleed into spiritual practice where it can feel like we're trying to discover the right perception of the world or the one perception of true reality. Maybe the mind will cut, uh, uh, calm down and then we perceive, we perceive a true reality out there. But maybe this isn't the case. And the Zen master Dogen uh speaks to this in his fascicle is uh, this essay this uh, called the genjo koan and so i want to share that with you and slow down with it because i think he's pointing to something that's important for us as practitioners and something about perception and he begins this section of the genjo koan and he he says when the dharma does not fill your whole body and mind you think it is already sufficient or you think it's already complete that everything is complete when dharma actually fills your body and mind, you understand that something is missing. So I just want to point out, he's he's a Zen master, so I always like to mess around with things. Often I would imagine it differently that when my, my heart and mind is filled with the dharma, it would feel like everything's complete. That, that that makes more sense. But he's switching that around. Oh, you're completely filled with the dharma when it feels like something is missing. And then he, he explains this. He gives an example. He says, for example, when you sail out... And I need to say, you know, there's a 13th century Zen master, so he's talking about the ocean and, and a lot of the literature about kind of some poetic descriptions of the ocean from that time. So I just want to say that. Okay, so for example, when you sail out in a boat to the middle of an ocean where no land is in sight and view the four directions the ocean looks circular and does not look any other way right so you're out in the boat in the middle of the ocean it looks circular from there but the ocean is neither round nor square its features features are infinite in variety for some beings it's like a palace for others It looks like a jewel. It only looks circular as far as you can see at that time. All things are like this. Though there are many features in the dusty world and the world beyond conditions, you see and understand only what your eye of practice can reach. In order to learn the nature of the myriad things, you must know that although they may look round or square, the other features of the oceans and mountains are infinite in variety. Whole worlds are there. It is so not only around you, but also directly beneath your feet or even in a drop of water. I can have this feeling that I really know what the ocean looks like. Or maybe with Dharma practice, I'll come to really see things in this way, that this is the correct perception. This is the one perception. Have you noticed your mind have confidence like that? This is really what this person is like. I know it feels like a judgment arising in my mind, but I know. I really know. I know all about this problem that's arising in my mind. The way I perceive it is the right perception of it. Even the perception, I have a problem. right? I know that that's the perception. I really do. Really. I really have a problem. it can feel so convincing. But there are many ways of perceiving the ocean. There are many ways of perceiving a person. There are many ways of perceiving that thing that you're calling a problem. And when the heart is filled with the Dharma, it knows that whatever perception arises still something is missing hopefully you are noticing this on retreats and it can have sometimes grave consequences i i remember this happening on this retreat that was happening in the southwest where i where i live and there was a person who had a health condition I actually can't remember the details of the, the health condition. They might have had something like a type 1 diabetes. And he had his phone on him wherever he went on retreat because it was monitoring, monitoring his body. And every so often in the day, it would beep to alert him to a fluctuation in his condition. And then another yogi like you and me saw a phone, heard a beep... Exactly. (laughs) And the person with the phone was so surprised and so hurt to have someone come up and be like, you shouldn't be doing that. These two worlds collided in this way. And it was simply because of this confidence, this strong confidence in this perception with actually very little data. And and I want to also just acknowledge this is tricky territory because sometimes I do see something on retreat that I'm really concerned about. I have this perception. So I want to still name the culture of this to leave a note for us or for the, the front office or whatever. And can I still have this sense of like, and I know that something's missing. Something's always missing that's when my heart's filled with the dharma. And it's so interesting to notice when there is that conviction and to question it. So I want to go back to this point that... Uh, It's not about getting to some perception or perspective that is the right perspective or the true perspective of perception. And often we can do this around the problems that arise. Finally, I'm going to come to a place where I understand it. I really know what it's all about. It really switches things around when that's maybe not what we're doing here. That's just a perception. And this is so ingrained in us. Just if you look at different ways of perceiving where there's this can be the sense of that there is a, a true reality or a true perception and ones that aren't. But just visually, many human beings, not all, Right, our eyes take in a certain range of the light spectrum. Other animals, like butterflies, certain birds, certain insects, they're taking in a different range. They can see ultraviolet light, which we can't see. Or other animals, like cats and dogs, they have a wider frame of vision and also can see at night, but they can't see as many colors. who sees the right world or who senses the right world and who senses the wrong world? Who perceives the true reality? The same with sounds. Many human beings hear a particular range of sound frequency. Elephants, the range is much wider in terms of lower frequencies. Cats, the range with higher frequencies. Who hears the right world? Who hears the wrong world? Who perceives true reality? And this is what I'm so fascinated with, the Buddha that I discover in these texts from early Buddhism and also in this Theravada tradition. I don't feel like he's talking about seeing with the right perception or even perceiving a true reality. He was really clear about the domain he was teaching about. What was he teaching? No, you've heard this. Suffering and the end of suffering. What are the ways of perceiving that get entangled with greed, hatred, and delusion that lead to suffering? And what are the ways of perceiving and qualities of heart that lead to freedom. This is a, another way of understanding when the Buddha says, uh, yatta, butta, this knowing the, we, the way things are. It's knowing that experience is co created. This is also what Tueri was pointing to with dependent origination. Dependent origination is showing that there's a world of suffering that arises in part because of how this mind is. And it helps situate, because the Buddha does speak about distorted perceptions. Why are they distorted perceptions, the vipalasas? Because they lead to my suffering and the suffering of others. And then there's other perceptions that he talks about, Uh, three of them in this sutta, um, overlap with the, the three characteristics of perceiving impermanence, perceiving unreliability, perceiving not-self. So this word characteristic, uh, lakana, it's, it's uh, never used in connection with, the, with these three things in the suttas. Like there's a, the title of one sutta, the anatta lakana sutta, but the title came later. One of the common words, not always used, is sanya, perception. It's this invitation for practitioners to take on these perceptions of experience. And I I think it situates a little bit of, of this sensitivity to impermanence and stress and not-self in a a different way. Thanissara Bhikkhu points to this. He says, these three perceptions, the perception of inconstancy or impermanence, the perception of stress, or you could say unreliability, and not-self, are focused on our psychology, on how we can recognize when we're looking for happiness in the wrong way, so that we can learn to look for happiness in the right way. The contemplation of these three themes, the use of these three perceptions, is aimed at finding happiness, finding contentment that is true and lasting. To hear how it's so situated in suffering and the end of suffering. So, this is pointing to an, uh, another aspect of this path and practice that I've, I think I've briefly mentioned at other times, which is it's not only noticing how perception arises and passes away, it's utilizing perception to free the heart and mind. I'm utilizing these ways of perceiving, these three classical ways of perceiving, because they free the heart and mind. And how do they do that? they do that in some ways by shaping experience. At least some of these perceptions work in this manner. There's a poem by uh, Rilke that I think points in this direction. He says, The hour is striking so close above me, so clear and sharp, that all my senses ring with it. So here's, He's hearing the sound of the uh, the, the clock. I feel it now. There's a power in me to, to give shape to my world. I know that nothing has ever been real without my beholding it. My looking ripens things and they come toward me to meet and be met. My, my looking ripens things. It's just another way of pointing out that this mind, it's co-creating this world that's arising right now. It's ripening in it, perception, in these different ways. And, and I, I want to say, like I'm, I'm, uh, I want to situate this in a very classical way of understanding the unfolding of uh, practice. Like a common frame that many of us teachers have been giving you from the stage here is this main theme that what we do as practitioners is to be with experience as it is. And I do want to point out, that's a really great frame. Don't get me wrong. It's really good. Please continue. And I find this as such an important practice instruction for myself because my tendency to want complete control over experience is so strong. And to be able to, to have this encouragement, just to, Brian, just rest back, just to notice how things are. It helps loosen that, that desire that can be so deeply rooted as, I want complete control. Yet there's another way of understanding what we're doing here, as I said, which is uh, a little more classical, which is that it's about shaping experience that every moment I have a chance to shape experience in a particular way, towards the wholesome, towards the skillful. And from there, there a deep letting go can happen. The Buddha puts this simply in the Dhammapada. He says, irrigators, they guide the water. Or fletchers, they, they shape, they shape that wood, they shape the arrow. Shaft. Carpenters shape wood and the wise fashion themselves. They shape themselves. From this perspective, and this is so intertwined with dependent origination, that your life is being shaped moment after moment after moment, whether you choose it or not. So even when I'm like, screw it. I'm not gonna practice today, I'm just gonna take a break. <laughs> that's also shaping practice. <laughs> when I practice, that's shaping it. When I'm not practice, I'm shaping it. So this is what practice is about, is, is I decide, oh, it's better to choose than just to allow my old habitual conditioning to continue to roll on and on and on and continue to shape. Choose in the sense in the very little ways that I can. I remember not a lot of control, no control, but there can be a way of shaping. So it's learning the skill of gently and skillfully influencing, inclining the heart and mind in a certain direction toward freedom. And I want to point out you're already engaged in this. This is a different frame that fits in with getting a sensitivity of how the mind's co-creating the world. Like, for example, if your entire practice on this retreat is just feeling the body every so often throughout the day, that's inclining the heart and the mind to be here more often, to be present more often, to be more embodied. Just that. That's a great retreat. That's a wonderful retreat. If you just did that every so often, during the day, every day. Nobody ever believes me when I say that. <laughs> like, yeah, I know, but shouldn't I be doing something more? That's a great retreat. It's, it's shaping in this beautiful way. And it's not only inclining the attention in a certain direction, for example, towards the, the body... It can also be inclining in terms of what I'm talking about perceiving. This is what makes the Brahma-viharas so powerful. They color perception. Have you noticed that when metta is strong? It's coloring perception with kindness. And then, then there's kindness all around me. Have you felt that? It's amazing to shape a world, to bring a certain world, a beautiful world into being. Karuna, it's coloring perception with compassion. Mudita, it's it's coloring perception with joy. Upeka, it colors perception with equanimity. So if your entire practice is just remembering to be kind every so often throughout the day, It's inclining this heart and mind to reside in such a beautiful world of love. Just that, that's a great retreat, (laughs) just to point that out. My perceiving it ripens things in such beautiful ways. Even this core practice of simply being mindful Right? There's the moment of being lost and the moment of being mindful are two entirely different worlds. So it's not like there's a world out there and then I bring mindfulness to it. Rather, there's a certain world that arises when the mind is lost and there is another kind of world that arises when the mind is present. But sometimes it feels like that. I'm going to bring mindfulness to this experience out here. Mindfulness is is bringing, is giving birth to a different world. It's quite a powerful world because it leads to the end of that world of suffering. My my looking, it ripens things. If your entire practice is just remembering to be mindful, I think you know where this is going. (laughs) Every so often throughout the day, it's inclining the heart and mind towards freedom. And just engaging in that is a great retreat. Sometimes I think the practice discussions are just the, the this conversation of, yeah, but. I think that's, that, I think that's a lot of, of what I bring as a yogi. Yeah, that's, that's true, but. There's all these other horrible things going on and it's not working. I don't believe what you're saying is really what it's going down to. <laughs> So it's allowing you your, yourself just in your practice to just get the feeling, sense, oh, oh I, I do not see things as they are. I see them as I am. And to play, to play with this one way, it's just one way of framing practice. I want to be clear. The being with things as, you know, just being with things as they are, that's great. But sometimes there can be something alive about, oh, it's shaping this new world into being. A beautiful world that leads to freedom. And as Arandati Roy says, she says, Another world is not only possible, she is on her way. On a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. Can you hear this other world of freedom? Can you hear them? Can you hear him breathing on a quiet day? So may our practice here lead to that other world, that world of freedom for all beings. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. I'll just sit a moment here. And just a reminder, we'll once again have chanting this evening, and then after that, beginning at 10, we'll have uh, uh, the night sitting. And, and this Zen tradition is called Yaza, this tradition of night sitting, which is so beautiful. Okay, thank you, everyone.